You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, Laura. Hi, guys. And hello to the internet. Welcome back to live chat. Absolutely. For those who are new to this event, this is a series where we invite guests to do a live Q&A about topics we've discussed before in the podcast. Mm-hmm. We did Ancient DNA with our friend Leah from grad school. Just tons of fun. We did Turtles with our friend Steve from grad school. Pretty good reptiles. And now we are doing paleopathology with our returning guest, Laura, from episode 84 and also from grad school. <laughs> <laughs> Laura, please introduce yourself. Okay. Hi, I'm Laura Emmert. Um, I work at the Great Fossil Site. That's through ETSU and the Great Fossil Site. Um, I do fossil prep work and excavation at the fossil site, as well as modern prep for the zoological collection. And you're super good at it. Is there a dog in the background? There's a cat. Sorry. <laughs> That's right. Listen, we've got a cat in yeah. here. It's fine. This It's live. It's, it's okay. all the kinks. Yep. <laughs> The way that this is going to work is we have been amassing a list of questions from our followers on the social medias, and we're going to work through them. Will and I are going to have some questions. We'll ask you the questions we've gotten, and anyone who is watching live on the internet, feel free to throw a question in the chat, and we will see it. If you are not in the chat, but you're following us on Twitter or Facebook uh, or Instagram, send us a question there, and I might see it. (laughs) So I'll, I'll, I'll try to look a few times. So to start us off, Uh, Real quick, Laura, can you uh, do two things? Number Mm -hmm. one, explain briefly what paleopathology is. Mm -hmm. And then number two, what research you've gotten to do in the field. Okay, so paleopathology is the study of ancient diseases and injuries and infections. Um, Anything that shows trauma or anything wrong in the fossil or an archaeological record. Any, anything that's wrong with a bone pretty much falls under the umbrella of paleopathology, which <laughs> when is great. goes wrong. Yeah, when it's not the yes. way it should be. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, and my research is, I've done a couple of projects. I, well, one of them is sort of published. So we looked at, first off, well, I'll start with Big Boy. Uh, just He's so enigmatic. So Big Boy is a specimen, a large specimen of Teleosteros apisoma, which is the new species at the fossil site. Right. Um, my friend. Yeah, the new species of rhinoceros, yes, uh, that my friend Rachel and our advisor, Dr. Wallace, and myself published on. And Big Boy is his nickname. He has several pathologies. Um, he's got, bro- oh, you know, I've actually got photos of his injuries. So he's got, yeah. So he's got sure. several fractured ribs, uh, one of which has been broken into several pieces and fused together. So the two ribs have fused into a single fragment. And then slightly above that is a more simple fracture uh, where the two ribs remain different or well, remain separated, but obviously fractured. And keep an idea of what that looks like. So for the uh, audio for version, the audio, uh, we'll describe <laughs> yeah. what Laura is holding up. But if yeah. you want to see it, go to our YouTube channel and you'll yes. be able to see it. Yes. <laughs> so these are what the two fragments of ribs look like. So down here below, there's this one segment where the two ribs have fused together into a single one. And sorry about the cat. Uh, The bone is actually, if you can see it, the bone is actually kind of a smooth and healthy texture. It's very, very well remodeled and healed. 
Um, above this is a simple but more recent fracture. Still separated from the bone next to it, but much more rough in texture yeah. than the one below it. Uh, you can tell the roughness of the fracture it indicates that it's a much younger fracture. Uh, definitely happened after the smooth, comminuted fracture. Cool. Well, we yeah. actually, our first question that I have on this list ties very nicely into the work that you've done. And then we can start making our way through these mm -hmm. questions. Okay. Because the first question comes from AJ on Facebook, who mm -hmm. asks, why did you get into paleopathology? Oh. How your researchers led to your current career? Okay, well, that's a good question. Um, I have to give a shout out to my first osteological love, Mr. Boney. Uh, <laughs> Boney is actually the victim of the Batavia shipwreck and mutiny. He's located in the Fremantle uh, Australia Shipwreck Museum. But I'm probably six, maybe five years old, very young, very wee baby Laura. I fell in love with a skeleton, and my parents were thrilled. <laughs> uh, Boney. Found yourself a nice skeleton to take home. <laughs> absolutely. I was in love with Boney. I think his name is Jan. That's what they've called him at the museum. And Boney has lots of evidence of his death on him. Mm -hmm. um, he's been run through with a cutlass several times. There's cut marks on his rib. Wow. Right? Wow. The back of his head has uh, like an axe wound in it, and then he was clubbed in his shoulders. And so I started off with being fascinated by injuries to bones at a really young age. Yeah, and man, those are like some major injuries. <laughs> those are movie that injuries. Was, yes, <laughs> you got into a pirate fight. That was that was an execution, basically. It's something. Yeah. It's some horrible mutiny. Ooh, <laughs> poor, poor bony. Um, and after that, I've always been fascinated in bones that can tell a story. You look at a healthy bone, you're like, "Yep, that's a bone. It sure is. There it is. <laughs> it sure was." Sure enough, if you look at a broken bone, that bone immediately tells you so much about that animal. Um, infections can tell a story, and the resilience of the animals that you can infer from these breaks, is, it's just incredible. Very a little bit of morbid fascination, but really, it's, they're, just, they're just so interesting. It, there definitely is that, that nice aspect that you know something happened, other than mm -hmm. just birth, life, death. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. this, there was an event with this bone. Exactly. So we've got a list of questions here from our listeners who are asking, uh, for start, about the identification process of pathologies. Yes. So our first, this is a, another question from AJ uh, kicking us off. How do paleopathologists, in this case, you tell the difference between an injury that happened and mm -hmm. damage to the bone during the thousands or millions of years that it has been sitting underground, subjected to all the ground pressures? Okay, this one, this is a great question. So there's this whole thing about perimortem versus postmortem damage to bones. Perimortem means indistinguishable from the moment of death. It just means damage to a fresh bone without any evidence of healing. Uh, obviously, if it's healed, then you know the animal was alive and survived. If it's just broken, could have happened at death, could have happened a year after death. Hard to tell. Mm. And then, like, obvious post-mortem damage. There, you'll see differences in the way that a bone fractures. Uh, 
So, oh, actually, I've got a good example. So this, I've got a little fox femur here. And this fox was hit by a car. Um, I know because I picked it up on the side of the road myself. Hmm. Guaranteed, this is what killed him. (laughs) It's already when when it happened yesterday. Yeah, right. (laughs) When they have their clothes on, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, The thing about a fresh break is that fresh breaks, and you can see here, fresh breaks will have smooth and round, not rounded, but definitely smooth edges. Mm -hmm. Um, They won't be jagged. The edges fit back together perfectly, just about. Yeah. Um, and they're often in a spiral pattern. So if the, if for those that are on audio, so if you think about the bone being held lengthwise, it will spiral around the shaft. It won't just crack it in half like a stick because the bone has so much collagen and it is so flexible. So you always see that kind of helical fracture pattern. Um, a dry bone, a bone that's been in the dirt for 5 million years, the, ed- the broken edges will be more at right angles. They'll be more angular. Um, and that's a pretty good indicator. But this smooth, the smooth texturing of a break doesn't automatically mean that it happened at death. So if you compare the fox femur to this deer rib that I just broke this afternoon, like it's been <laughs> sitting in the attic for probably nine years. And I cracked it to make a point. Um, the edges are still spiraled. And rounded. Yeah, like mm-hmm. other than the discoloration, if you were to show me the two breaks, I wouldn't be able to differentiate. Yeah, right. Yeah. This could have could have been hit by a car. You don't know. Um, but the, it's great that you pointed out the discoloration. That is a great way to tell post mortem. On the fox, the break and the outside surface are exactly the same. Yeah. Same color, same texture. On the deer, on the outside is brown, but the fresh break is more white. Because oh, yeah. the outside but, has been affected by what we would call diagenetic processes, which basically is fossilization stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, very cool. Uh, yeah, but there's this is a whole this is a whole giant thing. Um, there are dozens of publications trying to figure out ways that you can tell the difference between the two, um, and people really struggle to agree. Yeah. On how how to differentiate it, um, people have looked at. Um, microscopy, looking at the breaks, seeing if there are differences in the cells that you can tell from fresh breaks versus old ones. Because uh, a lot of this goes to forensic anthropology or so, like true crime stuff. It's solving, like, was this person, was this break because someone was killed or later on did something happen to the body? You have to, you have to be able to figure out what was happening as they died versus what happened after they died. Yes. And there's still no really good way to do that on the scale of you know a hundred years yeah it's, it's really hard and I, I i could see that there'd be situations that are more more easily uh, easy to parse out if you have this one clue versus situations that could be much more vague right um a great example of this is lucy so the australopithecus mm-hmm. specimen uh, i guess it was in 2016 i think Somebody had posted that, not posted, somebody had published that based on the fractures of her bones, she might have fallen out of a tree. Oh. Now, the person who discovered Lucy, Donald Johansson, I think his name is, he doesn't buy it because he thinks that all of the damage is taphonomic. Mm-hmm. He says, exactly, she's been buried for five million years or however old she is. Uh, a lot can happen to a bone in that amount of time. 
but the people who published like, oh, this the way this humerus was crushed into the scapula is indicative of somebody being conscious during a fall and reaching their arm out to stabilize themselves, and all that force is directed into the shoulder. And they say that it's, uh, it's a unique fracture pattern, and you see it in elderly people who fall. Yeah. And they put out their arm to protect themselves. Um, and several other things that they say is because she fell something like 40 feet out of a tree. Huh. I remember when that but, came out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's super cool. But a lot of people are like, I don't know. She was buried in dirt for millions of years. It could just be. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of telling the difference between things, uh, once you are fairly certain you have a pathology, mm-hmm. our next question is also from Facebook from Nancy. Hey. Yep. Who asks, is it easy to determine disease versus injury? Yes. Very typically. So with a with a break, you will more often than not you'll have an offset of the bone. Because especially in animals, with people not as much based on modern medicine, but even even with modern medicine it's not gonna be perfect. The bone will always be slightly cattywampus. Um, so there will there will typically be an offset, and for those that are in audio, it's a little fox femur, and it's been broken in half, and the two pieces have the bottom of the femur has gone like kind of up into the side of the shaft. Um, while a disease, there won't be an offset because the bone hasn't broken. There's nowhere for the bone to go if it's got a disease in it, so it'll stay in line. Um, that's a good one. So uh, the way that well, I, I, I think in my mind, I'm thinking like when you see earthquakes and they've kind of like shifted a fence so it's mm-hmm. offset now because the thing has yes. actually moved instead of like you dug a hole in the dirt. Right. With the disease, you'll see the patterns of infection on the bone and you'll see pitting and all sorts of things on it, but it won't be it won't be offset in any way. And that's pretty much a, a good indicator. And the two will be found together. So if you have an open fracture, you'll have an offset. And then you will also have, if you're unlucky, you'll also have the evidence of infection yeah. on that bone as well. So Very cool. And then speaking of disease pathology, a question mm. from Finley on Facebook is asking, how do you know what disease it was? Mm. Okay. This is this is super complicated. There are <laughs> there are certain diseases that will leave marks on bones. And if you see those, like, oh, hot diggity, there it is. Like that is tuberculosis, that's syphilis, bing bang boom. Others so I think like people will throw around the term osteomyelitis. That just means it's a bone infection. It doesn't actually mean which one. So if you're really lucky, you can you can get characteristic lesions. But typically what we do is we will use bones of humans that we have today that have been to the doctor and we're like, oh, you have whatever, insert disease here. And then they look at the bones and see what that's done to the bone. And then you can go back in the fossil record and say, oh, well, golly gee, those two tumors look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And that's the best way to do it. So you can say, oh, that's an osteosarcoma versus osteochondroma and, you know, diffuse idiopathic spinal hypoarthropathy. <laughs> Ten dollar words that are learned. I know that guy in high school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that actually brings up a question. Does that mean that if we find evidence of a disease in a fossil that is a disease that humans don't get, 
that we would be less likely to recognize it? Yeah, absolutely. Ooh. So there's there's yeah. extinct diseases that may, may avoid identification because we don't have a modern analog or comparison. Yeah. Right. And, or even and when you see... You don't study today. Like, yeah. if, like, blue whale right. has a bone disease, we're not really going to be able to see a lot of those. Right. If it's something like a domestic animal, we'll have a generally good grasp of it. Mm-hmm. So if you can see it in cattle or birds. I think I talked about uh, Sue in the podcast where we mm-hmm. look at pigeons today and we say, oh, pigeons have this whatever and they've gotten DNA out of it and so they know what it is. And then you can look back at Sue and say, oh, gosh, well, based on the way the bone has reacted in this particular unique way, it is most likely this thing that we're seeing in pigeons today. So it's all about comparing the past to the present. Yeah. Take what we know about this and say, how does that relate to the fossil? Very cool to know. One more question uh, on the sort of identifying things uh, line of questioning mm-hmm. from Katie mm-hmm. on Facebook, who okay. asks, when you see an injury in a fossil, how able are you to determine whether that injury was the cause of death? Mm. Again, one of those one of those unfortunate gray areas in <laughs> paleopathology. Uh, going back to that that little fox femur, I know that a car hit it, and that's why that femur was broken. What if the fox had died of starvation and been stepped on by a horse? Mm-hmm. The bone is the bone is still broken. It's it's hard to tell. And even if you have so take for example, there's a great uh, paper about a smilodon of the La Brea carpets that had a fractured pelvis. Was it the fractured pelvis itself that killed it, or was it the fact that then the cat couldn't get to water and dehydrated it? So technically, the cause of death is dehydration, but it's due to the broken pelvis. But had that cat had access to food and water, could it have survived? There's always there's always a gray area. Yeah, and, and even like if you have a fossil, like I'll use from Mastodon and Gray, if it fell down a cliff and broke its leg on the way down and died on impact or if it died up on the bluff 10 years before the collapse and fell down, we wouldn't be able to see the difference there. So it's, so it's the answer really hard to tell. Not very. Yeah. <laughs> it's real hard. Not, not very. In people it's easier, you know, gunshot hole in the skull. You're like, okay, done. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. That'll do it. <laughs> so as a reminder for all of our people listening and watching, uh, feel free to put your questions, uh, send your questions uh, to us in the chat. And indeed, we just got one from Michael who asks, as a paleopathologist, do you ever find yourself em- empathizing with the animals you're studying? One million. <laughs> oh, how could you not? How can you not? Some of them are horrible. Oh, just. Oh, Okay. So one of one of my favorite specimens is this dog skull. For those that are on audio, it's a dog skull that has lots of holes in its face. Yeah, um, right in front of one of the eyes. Right in front of the eyes. It almost looks like it's been like peppered with, with babies or like birdshot or shotgun. Um, and it also has a giant hole wow. on, the, yeah, yeah, on, the on the roof of, of its Mm-hmm. The very roof of So basically, all the space between the teeth is the bone is just gone. It does not exist. It's been completely eaten away. Um, this was a chocolate lab um, that 
had been put down at a vet because he was so old and so crippled. And I've got his, I've got his leg bones and his arm bones as well. And he was just, he had so much arthritis and you know, this dog was in so much pain mm-hmm. and oh, Sad. it breaks your heart. And Sad. actually along those lines, <laughs> well, this reminds me of the one that my first experience of empathizing with an injured fossil is, and I said this on the podcast, yep. that that one specimen of the the reunion <laughs> of the rehealed walrus baculum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where I remember so uh, episode 53 the baculum is a bone that many mammals have in the male genitalia mm-hmm. where people would go walrus baculum and I'd be like, "Oh cool." And they'd go, "This is where it broke." And I'd go, "Oh weird." And rehealed and I'd go, "Ah, no." So I'm so sorry, Mr. Walrus. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh and along those lines, Aaron on Twitter asked Yes. What would you say is the most surprising evidence of an animal surviving something that they perhaps shouldn't have? Oh. I have my personal favorite, and this may not be the single most dramatic one ever, 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 because I am I'm only a human. My personal favorite is this deer that was shot in, I think it was in North Carolina. Um, I think Live Science found the guy who owns it and where he lives and all this stuff, but it is North Carolina. And it is a deer that was shot with a broadhead arrow years ago, diagonally through its ribs and survived with the arrow still embedded inside its ribs. Oh, right. I've seen wow. this. Probably from you. This, this deer should not have lived this so long. For the listeners, if you've ever seen a tree grow around like a telephone pole or something, it's that, but with ribs and an arrow. What it mm-hmm. looks like, to give a, another visual, <laughs> is it looks like the bones are trying to absorb an arrow like an amoeba. Yes. Yeah. That, <laughs> this is ours exactly. now. We will absorb its power. There is an arrow running diagonally through the ribs. You can tell this person was up in a tree stand yeah. shooting down at the deer because the point is directed like from where your shoulder would be down towards your belly button. And the bone has started to morph around it and encase it. And it is across five different ribs. This shouldn't have lived, should not have lived. It's what you said on the the podcast episode. Animals want to live. They want to live. Absolutely they do. Wow. Mm -hmm. So we have actually a bunch of questions here about examples. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is going to be great. Uh, Cheryl, our good friend on the internet, Cheryl, uh, asked on Facebook, can you speak to the pathology of the fossils at the Ash Falls fossil beds in Nebraska? So for, for our listeners, uh, Ash Falls is a site in Nebraska that is a, basically Pompeii, but for Miocene (laughs) animals. Yeah. Go on. Okay. So yeah, just to elaborate a little bit, there was, I guess it was the Yellowstone hotspot however many years ago, 30 million years ago, however old it was. And there was this huge, you know, probably something like one to two feet of ash that rained down near this watering hole. And you see birds and dogs and horses and deer. But the thing that they're most famous for is the rhinos. And the rhinos do all have this pathology. I say all, I think something like 90% of them have, um, Let's see if I can do this. <laughs> Hypertrophic osteoarthropathy. or osteo- It's osteopathy now. Hypertrophic osteopathy. And what happened basically is that these rhinos are 
snuffling around through the ash trying to find food and they're inhaling glass particles basically into their lungs yeah. <laughs> oh hey Ooh, if we're gonna play this game I'll play too I knew that Laura would have props so I, I brought one uh, my we, have, we are now holding the same random spell in two sizes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Yours is life size, right? Yes, it is. This is little guy. Yeah, this is life size little guy. But this is, is... Teleoceros, the same uh, uh, genus, not the same species, since Laura yes. called it a new species. I think the one at Ashfall is Teleoceros major, if memory serves. This yeah. one's just a cat. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> so they're snuffling around in all the ash. So they're snuffling around. They're breathing in this ash and. Through various chemical pathways, what this ash is doing in their lungs is they are causing an excess amount of blood flow to the extremities. So in humans, you see it in the fingers and the feet. In horses, dogs, cats, you'll see it in the lower legs, particularly, mm-hmm. and in the and in the hands and feet. And the the excess blood flow, the osteoblasts or the cells that make bone, feel all this. They see all this blood and they go, oh. There's a hematoma. Something must have broken. I'm going to make bone, and I'm going to fix it. Because, bless them, they're doing their best. They don't know. <laughs> yeah, look, go, like, go, guys. And so they'll start building bone on top of your healthy bone. So you see the bone, and then you see this, like, crunchy, frothy patches all over them. Mm-hmm. And that's the uh, osteopathy. And this would have taken weeks. So as these rhinos are breathing it in, it's getting worse and worse. They have fevers. Their feet are getting sore. Um, they're miserable. And so they're hanging out by the water. Like, I just, I can't go anywhere anymore. I'm just going to hang out by the water. And then they would die. Uh, and somebody just recently in 2017, 16, 17, they looked at oxygen-18 isotopes in the bones to see if because you can tell based on the, it's all, I don't know isotopes at all, and I'll be the first person to say it, but they could tell whether the bone was developed at a higher temperature or a lower temperature so they could see if they could prove that the animals had a fever at the end. And what they found is that there was too much of a change to be only accounted for by fever. So they said another thing that could do this is excessive drinking of water, which goes back to when you start to hemorrhage blood, you typically get thirsty. And so they're hot and they're miserable and there's all of the blood is in their feet and in their like faces. And they, it's rough. It's really bad. It's not a, not a way to go. Do we see, I, I don't know if you know the answer to this question. Hmm. Uh, has there been a lot of pathological study of Pompeii? I would wonder if you see similar, cause I know Pompeii was, you know, Ashfall is, as you're describing, in many cases, a slower death for the animals, mm-hmm. whereas Pompeii was have a pyroclastic flow. And yeah. Uh, to my knowledge, at least. Uh, the pe- to, to my knowledge of Pompeii, it would not have been long enough for the people to have started to show this this issue. Because, okay. like I said, it took it took weeks and weeks. So all the birds had to die. And all the, so it's like it's ascending order of size. Yeah. Or lung capacity and respiration. So the birds and the small mammals died almost instantly. And then the deer and then the horses and then the camels and then the rhinos. And then like a foot of everybody else is the tortoise because it's breathing like once a day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just a lonely tortoise crawling through the ash. Um, yeah, I think his nickname is Lonesome George. Just sad. Lonesome George was the... Um... 
the 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 last the Galapagos Galap mm-hmm. one of the Galapagos yeah. subspecies was named Lonesome George. He, he was yeah. the um, name. Endling. Yep. And endling is the name endling. we give to the last of their clade. Sad term. I've actually gotten to see Lonesome George. Oh yeah. Yeah, that was super cool. That's so cool. Oh well, we should. Steve didn't even talk about Lonesome George, and that was the Turtles episode. Come on, Steve. Uh, never bringing him back. <laughs> so let's let's you bring lie. the mood up just a little bit uh, with a question mm-hmm. about tapeworms. So oh. <laughs> Michael <laughs> Michael on Facebook asks, do parasitic infections like tapeworms, for example, show up in the fossil record? Okay. Hmm. So parasites typically will not leave lesions on the bones. I mean, if you consider a bacterial infection to be parasitic, Sure, because you've got Sue and everything, but that's that's not what he's going for. If you're talking like macro parasites that you can look and you can see and you can go, ew, get out of here, you don't. Blech. <laughs> not as much because they typically won't leave any evidence on the bones. So the way that we learn about parasites is typically through cladistics because they are so rarely preserved. But every now and then you get really lucky. So I think in Turkey there was a six thousand year old. Uh, I think a little girl, and they microsieved her pelvic region and found some tiny little egg. I want to say it was, gosh, I can't remember what the actual bacteria was, but it was some sort of, not bacteria, worm. It was some kind of worm egg, and they're able to find those in her uh, stomach, basically. Um, But we get lots of them in amber. We can get in amber, we can get them in super fine sediment. So they've got They've got evidence of fleas that used to live on dinosaurs, which, all right, let's 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 just pause for a second and talk about a flea that is almost an inch long with, <laughs> armor, with armored mouth parts for eating particular, for getting through particularly tough hide. Let's stop it. <laughs> <laughs> I know we had talked in one of our, I think it was a news about, uh, some sort of pupae mm-hmm. that were fossilized and CT scanned, and they found wasp parasitic wasp yeah, larvae inside of them. Parasitoid wasps, yes. Mm-hmm. No. Uh, tapeworms specifically have been found back as far as 270 million years in shark, shark poop, of all things. Oh, that's right. I've heard of this. Yeah. That's awesome. It's, it's really cool. So you can get a lot of evidence from coprolites as well. Which is which is super cool. I like that a lot. Um, and you can get ticks in amber. There was a new tick discovered recently. Uh, there are, if you consider the cordyceps fungus to be a parasite, there's evidence of that in the Cretaceous, I believe. Yeah, I think that's in my book. I have a book of cool fossil like behavior things. <laughs> I will give you this book at some point when the world <laughs> I would love that. Uh, is back to normal. But it has, it's in amber. So cordyceps, dear listeners, is that fungus that was famously in planet Earth, right? Yep. That grows out of the back of the ants' heads. The zombie It was a scene fungus. narrated by Sigourney Weaver. Oh, it was. <laughs> they did that on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> they're like, um, the, in the behind the scenes, they're like, yeah, yeah, no, no. We knew what we were doing. <laughs> and everyone in the studio was just like, ah. That's awesome. <laughs> And we found that in amber. Like, here's an ant with a fungus grown out of its head from mm-hmm. X millions of years ago. Awesome. Yeah. So cool. Mm-hmm. So now we've got a bunch of questions mm-hmm. coming in in the chat. Okay. So I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to do one other from our list uh, that we had because you mentioned cladistics. Mm-hmm. 
and bacteria and stuff. And Mark on Facebook asked, is it possible to isolate and identify remains of viral or bacterial DNA uh, to help with a diagnosis of a pathology? Sort of. Very, very recently, you can do that. So the oldest virus fragments, I want to say, are... um, they're like 55 or 6,000 years old, so really recent. And the oldest bacteria is 11,000 years old, honestly. So you couldn't do it with um, dinosaurs, for example. It's just not there. You could do it with the latest, latest, latest sub-fossil stuff. Um, you, can get, you can get really cool stuff. From the recent stuff, so there is there is a great example of uh, there was a coprolite or a fossilized poo of a puma, and the puma, <laughs> yeah, oh that's what it was. That was there. Hang on, let me check my notes. Yeah, seventeen thousand years old, and it was puma poop. Well, they didn't know it was puma first, so they had this poo, and so they analyzed the DNA and said, oh well, one, it comes out of a puma, which is really cool. And two, they were able to get the oldest parasite DNA out of it. And it is uh, Toxascarus leonina, which is a thing that affects cats today. Huh. So they're like, oh, cat had the same issue as it did 17,000 years ago. That's it. Um, traveling vets, you're good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was, yeah. um, what, did they, what did the character in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom call herself? Oh, Paleo-Vet? Paleo-Veterinarian? Yeah. <laughs> Which is a word that doesn't exist and would never exist. <laughs> well, they're, they're calling them Paleo-Microbiologists now. Oh, that is cool. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So the oldest uh, bacteria, the oldest bacterial genome is Salmonella, which is neat, which is like 6,000 years old. And the oldest virus fragments are from, this is really cool, it's from a sample of birch pitch gum from nearly 6,000 years ago in Denmark. And based on, you know, this already been chewed gum... From, from Denmark, they were able to say, all right, the person who was chewing on it was a woman with dark skin, blue eyes, dark brown hair. She was lactose intolerant. She had early stages of gum disease. She had eaten duck and hazelnut for her last meal. Ha! I'm not done yet. <laughs> she also had Epstein-Barr virus and um, a pneumonial form of streptococcus from a piece of gum. That's awesome. This DNA is, like, is amazing. It, it's like uh, you're saying all this, and I feel like it's an episode of House. That's, that's exactly <laughs> it's what like, and this is what you ate last night for dinner. It's like there's <laughs> gonna, that's going to be in a movie of someone pulling a gum out of the trash can. Is like we've got him. <laughs> 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 Very cool. I'm going to read some of these questions pouring into the chat. Okay. So Austin has asked, and I want to scroll up and make sure I'm not missing. Uh, Hi, Cheryl. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Austin has asked, are there any techniques that are used in both police work, like forensics, Mm -hmm. and paleopathology? They're basically all the same. Anything that cops can do minus, you know, the DNA and the destructive analyses and things like that, we can do with a fossil. Um, A lot of that is the macromorphological analysis that I mentioned in the podcast is just looking at it and using examples of what you know happened and comparing it to what you're seeing. So uh, 
Uh, you can look at blunt force trauma and infer from this bison that was fighting and they crushed their ribs. You can compare that to rhinos. A policeman can compare that to somebody. Had, so like um, Boney from the beginning, he had the blunt force trauma to his shoulder blades. Um, a lot of, a lot of the uh, methods from police work are very similar. Unfortunately with, with cops, they can do, they can do DNA analyses and they can actually, you know, take the hammer and put it in the hole and see if it fits, which you can kind of do with fossils, with bite marks and stuff like that, but not, not super often. Um, but a lot of the books, a lot of the books that I have on paleopathology are. It's very hard to, I'm holding up a fossil, everybody. Let's see if I can get it any closer. See if you can get it closer. This is old Stinky from the Great Fossil Oh, site. yeah, that's not get, showing up on my no, There we go. Uh, I'm trying to get the light you, to. He has two holes in his shell. Boop. This is a little musk turtle. Boop, boop. This is actually a 3D print of the holotype, and there are two holes in his shell that do seem to match quite well uh, the size and shape of our gator's teeth. That's awesome. So sometimes you can do it. Uh, sometimes. Sitting the thing in the hole. Typically with teeth. But all of the books um, that I have on paleopathology are human remain manuals. Oh, yeah. I've got several workbooks, and it's it's for people who are studying medieval skeletons and things like that. And those of us who are interested in the older stuff make do with today's resources <laughs> as best we can. Yeah. Uh, and now speaking of comparing modern to old pathologies, uh, Gav has asked a question which I don't know if Gav realizes that there is a Pandora's box uh, yeah. associated with this question, so we'll yeah. try to keep it brief. But he asks, or they, uh, Gav asks, when in time does pathology become paleopathology? Mm. Is it only after fossilization? <laughs> uh, no, and I don't know. This is going to sound stupid. I don't know that there is an actual cutoff because paleopathology, is also in like you can, people will also use the word for like medieval people no. which is objectively not paleontological yeah i mean that's barely even archaeological <laughs> <laughs> we had a similar discussion with leah about ancient dna yeah. what mm-hmm. what is there a cutoff for ancient dna and as she explained there's kind of different schools of thought and it basically is uh going into the question of what is a fossil yes yeah. Which is one of those phenomenal foundational questions that there isn't actually a solid answer for. Right. It's a question that, yeah, it seems like there should be, uh, like when people ask, they, I, I always get the feeling that they ask as if, the same way I'd ask, like, how much can this truck carry? Like, right. there's going to be a very set, <laughs> here's the statistics, that they're expecting us just to be like, oh, if it's this, this, or this. And they have the answer is, no, it's actually very, very gray territory <laughs> as mm-hmm. to, depends on who you ask a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and let's talk about just the word paleopathology in and of itself. What are they, like, why paleo if it's people? Why not archaeopathology? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paleo sounds cool. Dinner. Well, it's, I like to think of fossil, it's like adult, like yeah, depending on where you are and what decade it is and where in the world you live, an adult is defined in a thing, yeah. but like, we all know people who are technically adults. Yeah. 
to whom the label does not necessarily apply. Well, and I, I like that example <laughs> because you have the difference between legal adult and, adult and biological adult. Yes. Unlike, mm-hmm. biologically, we're mature way before we're an adult, <laughs> you know, legally speaking. Like, yes. we're sexually mature and we're reproductive before the law considers us a, an adult. So, like, that definition has yeah. different usages. Mm-hmm. It's like smut. You know it when you see it. <laughs> Fuck. <Yeah. laughs> well, and even then, you know, our bones aren't done fusing until we're in our mid-20s. Yeah. So if you found right. someone, if you found a hominid who was, you know, partially fused, you're like, oh, well, you know, they were sub-adult. They might have been the equivalent of, you know, 20-something, like pretty objectively an adult, but... yeah. Like, in, in, at certain times, they could have already had a family <laughs> Oh yeah, before yeah. their bones were done fusing. Yep. Uh, Gav did ask... Oh, no, I'm sorry. Kale has asked in the chat, what is the greatest number of multiple pathologies found in a single fossil? I have an answer for this. <laughs> I, you know, I wasn't sure, but it doesn't surprise mm-hmm. me. It's Big Big Al, the Allosaurus. And uh, he has seven. I have my whole list. So I talked to my friend, uh, also named Laura, <laughs> and she knows Big Al inside and out. And my best friend's she... name is also Laura. I'm not saying that I am my own best friend. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Different. <laughs> nice. Uh, and she has a friend. She works with somebody whose specialty is Allosaur paleopathology. So Big Al has the most, followed by Big Al 2, followed by Sue, followed by the Gorgosaurus at the Indianapolis Children's Museum. And Big Al has, he's got a broken and infected femur. He's got a wrecked toe, which is what they think killed him because it was so horribly infected and he couldn't run and he couldn't eat and so on and so forth. He has many, many, many bone spurs all along his spine. So all like from neck to tail, bone spurs all over him. He has an abscess on his pelvis. Um, there's a divot in his shoulder that they don't know what happened. Um, and several, several broken ribs. So that's, that's a minimum of seven. If you're counting bone spurs along the spine as one and multiple broken ribs as one, <laughs> he's got, he's got dozens and dozens of them. Yeah. He's got seven categories yeah. of injury. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, he had he had a rough time. It makes sense why they made the documentary about it because that's pretty bad. He's a bad dude. So speaking of dinosaur stuff, uh, I didn't intentionally skip this question. It, <laughs> I, I did accidentally skip it in my list. Although you'd be forgiven for thinking that I skipped it on purpose. Our friend Lucas has asked on Facebook, "Do we have evidence of dinosaur?" And I'll extend this to anything sexually transmitted diseases. In dinosaurs, no. Okay. Do we have Sad, it in other no. things? Yes. Ah. Yes, we do. Yeah. Typically in people, because um, it's not in dinos, but in people, well, and, and even bears. So there's a bear from 11,000 years ago in Indiana that had syphilis. And the syphilis bear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Only you can prevent sexually transmitted diseases. <laughs> <laughs> They're, they're using that bear as part of the evidence to support the pre-Columbian hypothesis of uh, syphilis and how syphilis got to Europe. Did it come from 
Africa and up? Did it come from North America over? How did syphilis get to Europe? And they're like, well, it was definitely in North America. It wasn't in Europe first and then came to America. Did it start in America and go that way? And I think in every situation, it's always a bit of both. Mm. There's, it's never black and white. I think they're saying that it was pretty much universally present. Like, it, it followed us out of Africa. Like, ha you're not leaving. You're not getting yeah. away from me. <laughs> I'm coming with you. Um, we've got evidence of, like, some of the oldest virus fragments are 4,500 years old. And it is um, hepatitis B. They have hepatitis B in people from several thousand years ago. And they actually found, so this, this is cool. This is the human, the herpes simplex virus. So there's the type 1 and the type 2. And the type 1 is the mouth sores. And that one, we've had, humans have had that since we split with chimps. We have always had the, the herpes 1. Herpes 2 actually came to us, so it, this is this is super cool. It went from apes to Paranthropus boisei, and then into Homo erectus. So we only got herpes 2 like a million and a half years ago, which is really weird. So the thought was that Paranthropus got it uh, from scavenging ape meat or something, yeah. and then Homo erectus got it from Paranthropus, either from scavenging, which people are kind of hesitant to say, or drinking out of a kind of contaminated water source, however, whatever the vector was, Paranthropus is the most likely vector to get it from apes to humans, which is weird. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot so more that... detail than I would have expected. Yeah. Kind of stuff. That's really interesting. I would have accepted no as an answer to this question. <laughs> like, okay, no, I buy it. Let's move on. <laughs> we, well, we can tell a lot of cool stuff. It's... Like being able to map the history of a disease in paleo history is really cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Neat. We got a question from Joel on Facebook and then also from a person on Instagram who might also be Joel. It's basically <laughs> the same question. Uh, so okay. one or two people have asked a very topical question, which is, is there any fossil evidence of pandemics? To my To my knowledge... I'm not aware of any that are obviously on the bones. I have, I've never heard of any kind of evidence like that. Because most of the, if you think of, if you think like the Black Plague, there's not a lot of evidence on the bones themselves, which is why it took so long for people to figure out what it was that really caused it. We needed to find the Yersinia pestis like DNA. Like if you didn't have any of the literature, of course, how would we find out what it was? You'd have to use the DNA. You couldn't just look at the bones and say, aha, Black plague, um, so it's it's un, it's unlikely to have evidence of a pandemic that didn't leave like didn't leave evidence on the bones. Yeah, that I makes mean, sense. I, I remember. I mean, it, it has been uh, on the topic of mass extinctions. Every now and then, you'll hear somebody float the idea of some sort of pandemic that mm -hmm. is related to mass extinctions. Mm -hmm. uh, although usually, I find I hear that shot down by the point that it'd be very unlikely to have a pandemic that can affect so many different species. That's mm -hmm. what my thinking was. Like, diseases yeah. tend to be pretty specific to who they are, are hosting. Yeah. Right. Who, who they accept as hosts. So like, I could yeah. see that. I could see merit in looking for evidence of human pandemics, you know, that to try to figure out within our own history. But I, I like, I, if there was a pandemic, it would be like, frogs got hit really hard that one time and then yeah. 
and, and everyone else was fine. Yeah, and then yeah. no one else noticed. They went, have you seen a frog recently? No. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and then kept going. So, yeah, weird dynamics. I, did, I wrote an article or a script for SciShow a while back about ancient human pandemics. And those we can study because people kept records. So those are fun stories because it'll be like, so-and-so back in Rome during blah, 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 blah century recorded these symptoms in all the people. And then you've got all your uh, medical folks these days who are like, all right, what diseases fit those symptoms? Trying to figure it out. Yeah. But they, someone wrote it down. 40,000 people died in six months and it, but they had these symptoms. This is why we document things. That's why I write down. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, uh, I was reading recently that uh, diseases like flus and measles and I think hepatitis as well are relatively recent because they couldn't spread effectively before humans had these dense population zones. Like, what's the flu going to do in a tribe of six? Yeah, mm. it's gonna attack six people. <laughs> yeah, yep. nailed them. But it's, then it's yeah. like it's it's never gonna be a pandemic until people are living in these condensed areas. That makes a lot of sense. Indeed, mm. I was just saying before uh, we were talking before we started the recording yes. that one of the things I learned about while doing that SciShow script was, and I don't want to go into too much detail on this because <laughs> it's not known very well. I don't know it very well. Like I uh, say too much. But there is this time period several thousand years ago where we see the end of a bunch of major epicenters of early human civilization that some have suggested might have been linked to a pandemic because you had the first huge cities. And people have said, well, they first huge cities and then eventually they were all abandoned, it seems. Maybe you had... A, an actual pandemic because you had thousands yeah. of people together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which is cool. Which also then uh, would make sense that there's probably certain groups of animals that you're less likely to see plague events mm -hmm. with. You know, like, right. you know, how often are herds of elephants going to be able to pass it on to another herd of elephants versus rodents? Right, right. That we're going to spread it more easily. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Speaking of ancient peoples, one of our questions, uh, I was going to just remember the question, and then I realized that I needed to read the name. <laughs> also, uh, Jimmy has said in the chat that that was them who asked that question. Hi, so Jimmy. I assume uh -huh. it's Jimmy. There's only one M in it, so maybe it's <laughs> Jimmy. Our next question, this is from Bart on Facebook. If you know, uh, Laura, uh, what was the lifespan of early hunter-gatherers? Okay. That's a good that's a good question. And there's lots of different levels to this. So so the, the accepted answer is like so it used to be twenty to thirty-five and now it's thirty-five to forty. Um, the thing about lifespan is that it's so affected by infant mortality and this thing that they're calling the invisible elderly. So what you'll have is you'll have these groups. Yeah, right? Yeah. So <laughs> so you'll have these groups from, you know, based on bone fusion. Juvenile age ranges are really good. It's like, oh, when the tibia fuses, they're whatever months old. And when the humerus fuses, they're two years old. And when the skull fuses, they're four. And so you can, you've got all these deep, 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 deep little, little zones until you're done fusing. And then you can use 
muscle development. I forget what the other age ranges are, but it's like 20 to 30 and 30 to 40. And then 40 slash 50 plus is everyone else. And they're calling those the invisible elderly because they might have been 80. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. If they didn't have arthritis or excessive tooth decay, how would you... How would you really tell? So in, I think it was 2014, there was a study and somebody had broken it down. Cave and I forget who the other author was, uh, broke it down into 40s and 50s, 50s and 60s, 60s and 70s and 70s and 80s tooth wear patterns to hopefully uh, get a little bit more resolution into the 40 plus invisible elderly. So if you have people over 40 in just one group and then a really high infant mortality, your life expectancy is going to be really low, really, really low. So what you need to look for is the modal life expectancy, which is the number that shows up the most. But that's hard to tell in people until people refine these toothwear groups and can really start putting ages on these people. So if you take lifespan of hunter-gatherers in Africa today, they can live to be 70 easy. Average lifespan is like 68 to 75. Would ancient peoples be so different? Yeah. Or is it just that we don't have that resolution in the fossils to tell that? And there have been several, several, several studies about this. And one fun fact about uh, lifespan and ancient humans and hunter-gatherers was a fun... So you think of these Neanderthals as being these... You know, they had so much trauma, they look like bull riders and rodeo clowns and professional football players. Well, there was a study done in 2018, 2017, and they looked at something like 850 bones of Paleolithic, Paleolithic humans and Neanderthals. So, that, you know, living roughly at the same time and looked at patterns of cranial trauma. In them, and they found that they had pretty much exactly the same percentage of cranial trauma. So I think it's like four to thirty percent in Neanderthals, and two to thirty-five percent in early human, like human humans. Mm-hmm. And what they found was like, okay, people, they're getting hurt the same amount, but Neanderthals are less likely to survive the trauma for whatever reason. Huh. Homo sapiens will survive young cranial trauma, while Neanderthal will not. And they don't have a mechanism for that yet. They're not sure why. But that is the pattern that they see. Interesting. Yeah. There are lots of games you can play with the lifespan. And I think what I really like is looking at lifespans of hominids through history. And they say there's basically an exponential jump in life expectancy about 30,000 years ago. And then, like, in parentheses, they're like, or it could be as much as 120,000 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. That's super helpful. (laughs) But if you Uh, look at the – there's one paper that had these great pie charts of the life expectancy. So it was, like, infant, child, young adult, adult, and the, you know, like, like if your life expectancy was 70, it was, like, 0.01%, 1%, 2%, 40 percent 60 percent and so it's just exponential growth as medicine and cities and as we've improved yeah it's it's cool to see this this growth very very cool now we are nearing the end of our time here we did oh i have so much to say (laughs) Um, so i'm going to ask you one last question because i have one more prop Uh, to show off, and this is hey. a fella that you know. Mm-hmm. So th- I believe this is Snaper. 
right? So yes. this is, I'm holding up a 3D print of one of our tapir skulls from the Great Here's Fossil Site. in a different different color. And there's a one you can I see better because it's not stark yeah. white. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of pathologies, can you talk about this tapir? Yeah. So this is from the Great Fossil Site, the place where all three of us work mm-hmm. and also met each other. Yeah. Uh, so it's a great place to end uh, our discussion. Go right ahead. Snaper, Snaper is an old, 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 old individual. Um, I always think of tape Snaper as a she. I don't know if she is or not, but that's what I'm going with. <laughs> and Snaper, so if you look at the underside of the skull, this is not how the teeth are supposed to look. <laughs> the teeth should all look like this or like this. But what you have in the color differences here is this is all exposed dentin here and here. So this is the M1, the first molar, and the teeth are incredibly worn. You can tell that this individual is incredibly old based on these teeth wear, tooth wear. And Snaper is also covered in lots and lots and lots of arthritis. She's got it all over her hands and her long bones and everything. Um, and also a fun fact about her is that she had whole hickory nuts in her stomach. So they thought that based on her tooth, based on her teeth, this exposed dentin would not have been comfortable. She might not have been chewing things properly and just swallowing them whole, just trying not to chew as much as she could. Um, she's, she's a cool, she's a cool fellow. Grandma Tabor. Yeah. Looking out over the, the sea of tapers at the Great Falls. <laughs> yeah. The snaper was a big one for uh, some research that I did where I looked at patterns of pathology in tapers at Gray compared to tapers in Florida and saw what was age-related versus what was traumatic and so on. So, yeah. Very cool. It just occurred to me looking at our screen that we missed a perfectly good opportunity to pretend for to pass <laughs> oh yeah 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 scuttle from one screen to the other i'll do it next time <laughs> laura thank you so much for joining us today uh, absolutely it like you have many animals who are vying for your attention over there <laughs> yeah sorry <laughs> well i was gonna put them outside but they would bark if they were outside it doesn't matter yeah, that's that. <laughs> that's what they do in a way Everyone, thank you for sending in your questions. We apologize for the uh, any questions we didn't get to, but we will be. There's more to come next week. We will be doing our fourth and for now our final live chat in the series, which we are going all the way back to episode eight. Yeah, way back. Conservation paleontology. Oh, it's gonna be good. Yeah, where we will have a twofer, a double whammy. Mm-hmm. Our friends Rachel and Jeff will both be joining us. The grand finale. The grand finale, yeah, that's Double it. up. We're gonna, this is our end game. All, right, all the cast will be here. So once again, thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, this video will be up on YouTube later, so if you missed some of it, you can rewatch it. Uh, we will also release an audio uh, through the podcast, so if you just want to listen to it, people who are listening to it th- with the pod- uh, through the podcast now, if you want to watch it, go to YouTube. And other than that, keep an eye out for more. Thanks so much for all the support. Uh, if you liked this, if you're liking this, if you're having a good time, let us know and we'll uh, see about doing more stuff like this in the future. Absolutely. And with that, we will sign off. Thank you again, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we'll see everybody next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. 
You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.